Section 11 of The Woman Movement by Ellen Kay, translated by Mary Budden Mama Brothwick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 11, Part 2 of Chapter 7. But our time exhibits also other less convulsively strained conditions of the feminine soul and therefore also brighter fates for women. It shows not infrequently wives united with their husbands, not only by the sympathy which the human personality of each inspires, but also by the erotic attraction which the sex character of each exercises. And they have both won thereby that unity through which all the best and highest powers of their being are liberated and elevated as by religion, and their parenthood will then be the highest expression of this religion. Only religious natures are, in deepest meaning of the word, loving or faithful or creative. It is the same soul which in one person reveals itself in ecstasy of belief, in a second in ardor of creation, in a third in great erotic passion, in the fourth as parental love, in others again as love of country, as enthusiasm for freedom, desire for reform. At times one and the same soul, a woman's or a man's, is kindred by all these passions, but never has the same soul been able, at the same time, to feed all these passions in their highest potency. Whether it be God, a work, or a human being, that the soul embraces with its entire devotion, the religious character of this devotion always evinces itself in increasing longing, an endless skeptability, a more persistent search after means of expression, a continual service, an inexhaustible patience in waiting for reciprocal activity from the object of love. The religious strength of a feeling consists in this, that the soul in every work, every sorrow, every joy, in a word, in every spiritual condition, every experience is, consciously as well as unconsciously, more closely united with God, with the work, with the beloved, until every finest fiber of one's being reaches down to the profound depths which the object of love represents for the lover. In this necessary condition of concentration of the spiritual life is found the truth of woman's complaint that the man absorbed by his work no longer loves her, the truth of the experience that earthly love indisputably detracts from the love of God, the truth of the frequent experience of husband and wife that with the children the wealth of their spiritual life together is in certain aspects inevitably diminished. The truth of men's fear that women's absorption in a life work personally dear to her must to a certain degree detract her from her devotion to the home. The truth of the experience that the office of mother often interferes with the development of women's intellectual power. Only persons who distinguish themselves by what Ain called exuberance of mental poverty, or what I might call, analogously, an abyss of superficiality, have not experienced the severe and beautiful psychic truth of Jesus' glorification of simplicity, the quiet hearkening to the voice of God, or the inspiration of work, or to the delicate vibrations of another soul, which daily, hourly, momentarily, are the conditions that enable the soul to live wholly in its belief, its work, its love so that these feelings may grow stronger and the soul grow greater through these feelings all this has a simplicity as a condition in a word symmetrical unity longing for completeness inner poise the swift emotion fidelity to a belief a work a love is no product of duty it is a process of growth these are the conditions to which many modern women womenly at heart but divided restless groping attempting much will not submit 
they could even learn to reverence these conditions in the child for whom play is such sacred seriousness but instead they transform the most sacred earnest into play other women on the contrary are beginning to understand these conditions of growth and to comprehend that it was exactly the protected position of women in the home which has made it possible for her family feeling to acquire that depth which is to be attained only by concentration but if this is no longer possible then woman will love those that belong to her with less religious warmth nothing can better illustrate the difference still existing between men and women in this respect than the fact that most men would consider themselves unfortunate if their entire exercise of power were concentrated upon the family while most women still feel themselves fortunate when they have been given the opportunity to exercise to the uttermost the tendency inherent in them for most women love best personally and in propinquity while the potency of love in men often seeks distant goals woman is happy in the degree to which she can bestow her love upon a person closely connected with her if she cannot do that then she may be useful resigned content but never happy the very fact that woman's strongest primitive instinct coincided with her greatest cultural office has been an essential factor in the harmony of her being the modern developed mother feels with every breath a grateful joy in that she lives the most perfect life when she can contribute her developed human powers her liberated human personality to the establishment of a home and to the vocation of motherhood these functions conceived and understood as social in the embracing sense in which the word is now used give the new mother a richer opportunity to exercise her entire personality than she could find in a modern commercial work in one such occupation she must suppress either the intellectual or the emotional side of her nature in another the life either of the imagination or of the will in domestic duties on the contrary these powers of the soul can work in unison this is undoubtedly the deepest reason why taken as a whole women have become more harmonious and men stronger in any special crisis women more soulful men more gifted on this account men offer their great sacrifice more readily for an idea or for the accomplishment of a work women for persons closely connected with them and yet this cooperation of women's spiritual powers was in earlier times partly repressed by men's demand for passivity on the part of women as a thinking and willing personality but for her unceasing activity as a promoter of his comfort and that of the entire home the mother of today can on the contrary exercise as distributor her culture her thought her supervision her judgment and her criticism in order to make fully effective the faculty of her sex for foresight and organization she applies a great amount of spiritual energy to the selection of the essentials and the subordination of secondary things to the creation of such facilities in the material work that time and means are left for the spiritual values which alas are still neglected in the domestic economy of small private households as well as in the national housekeeping and as mother modern woman is offered the first fitting opportunity to assert herself as a thinking and willing personality the significance of the vocation of mother has been underrated in its significance even by moderate feminists but these were right when they demonstrated that the sanctity of this office had become a mere phrase so badly or amateurishly was this vocation fulfilled an indictment in which nietzsche and feminism for one rare moment are on common ground mothers needed the spur of discontent it was necessary that their feeling of responsibility their universal human culture their personal self-reliance should be aroused by the woman movement 
Only so could the new generation acquire the new type of women, who, for the present, seek to qualify themselves by self-culture for the office of mother, in the expectation that for all women an obligatory education for motherhood will be realized. So long as this vocation can be practiced without any training, nothing can be known of the possibilities whereby ordinary mothers may become good educators, unless they place the mother love and the intuitive understanding of the nature of the child that it affords above even the best outside teachers. Just as a glorious voice makes a country girl a natural singer, so nature has at all times made certain mothers, and not least the women of the people, natural educators of children. The biography of nearly every great man shows the place of the mother through her personality occupied in the life of her son, the atmosphere which she diffused about her in the home, their direct and indirect influence, but only the culture of their natural gifts with conscious purpose will make of mothers artists. When Nietzsche wrote, there will be a time when we shall have no other thought than education, and when he placed this education specifically in the hands of mothers, least of all did he mean those arts of education from which a maternals believe they guard children by rejecting an artistically creative home training by the mother as a violence to the peculiar characteristic of the child. The new mother, as the doctrine of evolution and the true woman movement have created her, stands with deep veneration before the mystic depths she calls her child, a being in whom the whole life of mankind is garnered. The richer the nature of the child is, the more zealously she endeavors to preserve for him that simplicity which he needs, and at the same time to provide for him the material that will enable him to work for himself. She ensures to the child the pleasures adapted to his age, pleasures which at no later time can be enjoyed so intensely. The effect upon him or his playfellows and books of nature, art, music, conversation, or the entire home milieu, which the child receives above all the influence of the personality and interests of the father and mother, all these the mother, who is an artist in education, observes in order to learn the natural proclivity of the child and then directly to strengthen and encourage it. At the same time, she endeavors to find what restraints are necessary in order that the natural bent be not impeded in its growth by secondary qualities. But the new type of mother does not seek to eradicate. She recognizes the likeness between wet and tears. The Christian education, which has thus far prevailed, has exercised a restraining oppression or has done violence to the sinful nature which must be broken and bent. This education was dermatological, not psychological, in method. The new mother is especially characterized by the fact that she has rejected this earlier method. She allows her child within certain bounds full freedom and demands beyond those bounds unconditional obedience. She helps the child to find for himself ever nobler motives for repression. This she can do because from the very beginning she was taking care of him. Year by year she has preserved in the effort to establish good habits. She has tried to enlist as aids, food, bath, bed, dress, air, and play in the effort to keep him strong, sound, sexually pure, conditions fundamental to the whole later conduct of life. Such a methodical physical care can be performed by the mother herself, while on the other hand, in the first years of childhood, paid hands might, through carelessness, stupidity, cruelty, laxity, or overindulgence, destroy the glorious possibilities. 
if the prevention of the possibilities of nature warped or destroyed constituted all that a mother would give this one task would nevertheless be more important than any social relief work what characterizes the new mother is that she understands the enormous significance of the first years when the indispensable training takes place in which the future life of the child is determined by the methods employed whether they be by those of torture or of culture irrational or rational then the great problem must be solved of establishing willing obedience from within the place of the hit hertho enforced obedience from without of maintaining self-control won by self in place of self-control imposed from without of evoking voluntary renunciation in the place of enforcing renunciation for the capacity of obedience for self-control for renunciation is one of the qualities fundamental to the whole later conduct of life the new mother knows this as well as the mother of the former times but she endeavors to create this capacity by slow and sure means the same thing obtains in regard to physical and psychical courage which in the early years can often be so demoralized by fright that it can never emerge again the training which hitherto was customary based on compelling and forbidding had its effect only upon the surface and prevented the child from experiencing the results of his own choice it is this indirect education by results which is the new mother's method her unceasing vigilance and consistency are required in order that the child shall actually bear the results of his actions what she needs for this is first and foremost time time and again time apparently good effects can be obtained much quicker by intervening preventing punishing but thus are turned aside the real results by this method the child is deprived of the inner growth which only the fully experienced reality with its components of bitter and sweet can give and this growth the new mother endeavors to advance much more time still is necessary to play the psychological game of chess which consists in the checkmating of black by white in other words the conquest of negative characteristics by positive through the child's own activity a task in which the child at first must be guided just as the assimilation of the elements of every other accomplishment but in which he can later perfect himself modern investigation in the realm of the soul enables us to see the dangers which sometime will demand quite as new methods in spiritual hygiene as bacteriology has created in the hygiene of the body but we still leave unexercised powers of the soul still misunderstand spiritual laws which sometimes will radically transform the means of education at some future day the new mothers will institute legal protection for the children to an extent incomprehensible to us and therefore provocative only of smiles for example legal prohibition of corporal punishment by parents as well as teachers legal prohibition of child labor of certain tenement conditions certain amusements certain improper uses of the press for the present every individual educator must set these laws over himself must sedulously create counter influences to cope with the destructive influences which great cities especially exert upon children the new mothers lead children out into nature and endeavor to satisfy their zeal for activity by appropriate tasks as well as to encourage by suitable means their love of invention and their impulse for play in the country children provide much for themselves but what both city and country children need is a mother familiar with nature who can answer the questions which the child is by his own observations prompted to ask 
and the number of such mothers is continually increasing. Both city and country children need also a mother who can tell stories, just as the settlement gardens most clearly demonstrate how sundered the working people of the great cities are from nature. So the story evenings, which are now established for children, show how far children have been permitted to stray from the mother, who formerly gathered them about her for the hour of story, play, and song. What, finally, children need is the mother's delicate relevation of the sexual mystery, which often early exercises the thoughts of the child and in which he should be initiated quietly and gradually by the mother. All the educational influences here outlined emanate not only from the enlightened, exceptional mother, they are exercised by the average mother of today to better advantage than by the spiritually significant mother of 50 years ago. And they are quite as essential in order that the highest possibility within the reach of each may be attained, in the education of the genius as in that of the ordinary child. Such influences in like degree strengthen the innate band of the genius and raise the average from generation to generation to a level where men can live according to higher standards than those of the present time. The new mothers understand that for the utilization of all these opportunities that make their appearance in the first seven years of the child's life, their motherly tenderness, gentleness, and patience do not suffice, that they need, in addition, all the intelligence, imagination, fine feeling, scientific methods of observation, ethical and aesthetic culture, and other spiritual acquisitions they possess as direct and indirect fruits of the woman movement. When student and comrade life begin to claim the children, when the influence of the mother, that is of the new mother, who has respect for the peculiar characteristic, the human worth, and the right of the child to live his own life, becomes more indirect, she nevertheless bears in mind that it is of the utmost importance that the son and the daughter should find the mother when they return to the parental roof, that they should be able to breathe there an atmosphere of peace and warmth, that they should find the attentive eye, the listening ear, the helpful hand, the mother should have the repose, the fine feeling, the observation requisite for following, without interfering with the conflicts of youth, that she should not demand confidences, but be always at hand to receive them, that she should show vital sympathy for the plans of work, the disappointments, the joys of the young people, that she should always have the time for the caresses, tears, smiles, comfort, and care, that she should divine their moods and anticipate their desires. By all these means, the mother perpetuates in the soul of the child, unknown to him and to herself, her own personality. The talent which she has not redeemed by a productive work of her own, perhaps often for that very reason, benefits mankind in a son or a daughter in whose soul the mother has implanted the social ideas, the dreams, the rebellion, which later become in them social deeds or works of art. Above all, in the restless, sensitive, life-deciding years, when the boy is becoming a youth and the little girl a maiden, the mother needs quiet and leisure to be able to give the ineffably needy children the hoarded secret treasure of her heart. And, as the beautiful saying of Dürer runs, when such a mother is found, such mothers are already found, she is the most splendid fruit of the woman movement sowing upon the field of women's nature. Because the new mother created for herself an open space about her own personality, she understands her son or her daughter when they, in their turn, push her aside in order to create that same open space about themselves. 
for in every generation the young renounce the ideas and the aims of their parents the knowledge of this does not prevent the new mother any more than it did the mother of earlier times from feeling the pain incident of being set aside but the former looks forward to a day when the son and daughter will freely choose her as a friend having discovered what a significant pleasure the mother's personality can afford them as the bird's nest is made of nothing but bits of straw and down so the feeling of home is fashioned out of soft simple things out of little activities that are neither ponderable nor measurable as political or as economic factors when segantini painted the two nuns looking wistfully into the bird's nest he gave expression to the deepest pain that many modern women experience the pain resulting from the consciousness that their life notwithstanding its freedom is lonely because it has denied them the privilege of making a home and as a consequence has failed to afford them the joy of creation which the nature intended they should have and of continuity of life in children to whom they gave birth here we stand at a point where the woman movement parallels the other social revolutions undeviatingly as the rails of a track and leads to the same objective modern men and women and especially women have forfeited an opportunity for happiness in the loss of the feeling of homogeneity and security just as formerly the property holding family felt a secure sense of proprietorship in the ancestral estate so every member of the home group felt himself safe in the family now the children cannot depend with certainty upon the parents nor the parents upon the children the wife upon the husband nor the husband upon the wife each in extremity relies only upon himself the character of men is thus altered quite as much as trees are changed when they are left standing alone in the denuded forest of which they once formed a part if they can withstand the storms they have produced more character than they had when they stood close together under a mutual protection that nevertheless enforced uniformity from their earliest youth innumerable women must now care for themselves as well as decide for themselves thus the feeling of independence of modern women has increased through the sacrifice of her peace her individual characteristics at the expense of her harmony her feeling of loneliness is mitigated to a certain degree by the growing feeling of community with the whole but this feeling cannot compensate certain natures for the forfeiture of the advantages which women of earlier times possessed when they sat secure and protected within the four walls of the home sucked the juice from the family chronicles guarded family traditions maintained the old holiday customs lived at the same time in the past and in the present the new woman lives in the present sometimes even in the future her land of romance the enthusiasm of the old romanticism about a hut and a heart has little charm for her for she knows reality and that prevents her from grieving credence to the feminine illusion that twice two can be five what she does know on the contrary is that out of force she can gradually work out sixteen while the women of former times could only save the new woman can acquire women's beautiful foolish superstition regarding life has vanished but her eagerness to achieve can still remove mountains her daring has still often the splendor of a dream intellectual values are for her no longer pastimes but necessities of life with her culture has developed her feeling for truth and justice this does not secure the new woman immunity at old times from new illusions and errors of feeling nor does it prevent her developing passions whose value to say the least is questionable
but in and through her determination to be someone to have a characteristic personality she has acquired a love of life and its diverse manifestations both good and evil a new capacity to enjoy her own and others's individuality as well as a new joy sometimes an unblushing insolent joy in expressing her own being in place of the earlier resignation towards society the expression of rebellion is found even in the sparkling eye of the schoolgirl with red cap upon her curly hair the young women of to-day married or single mothers as well as those who are childless are still more vigorous in soul more courageous more eager for life than are men because all of that which for men has so long been a matter of course is for women new rich enchanting comprising as it does free life in nature scientific studies serious artistic work economic independence even in a fine and soulful woman there is found something of the inevitable hardness towards herself and others of which an observer is instinctively conscious when he speaks of some woman as one who will go far upon the course she has chosen the modern young woman desires above all else the elevation of her own personality she experiences the same feeling of joy a man is conscious of when she realizes that her strength of will is augmented her ability becoming more certain her depth of thought greater her association of ideas richer she stands ready to choose her work and follow her fate in sorrow as in joy she experiences the blessedness of growth and she loves her view of life and the work to which she has dedicated herself often as devotedly as man loves his if we compare the seventeen-year-old girl of today with her progenitor living in the middle of the foregoing century we find that the girl of earlier times was to a larger extent swayed by feeling and that the modern girl is to a larger extent determined by ideas the former was directed more to the centre of life the latter remains often nearer the periphery the former was warmer the latter is more intelligent the former was better balanced the latter is more interesting the restlessness the uncertainty the feeling of emptiness the suffering that is sometimes experienced by the young woman of today is primarily traceable to the disintegration of religious belief which gave to the older generation of emancipated women an inner stability resignation and self-discipline scientific study has deprived many modern women of their belief and those who can create a new one suited to their needs are still very few thus to the outer homelessness an inner estrangement is added the woman movement has it is true contributed indirectly to the spiritual distress by making the road to men's culture accessible to women for men also suffer in like manner and suffer above all perhaps because our culture is unstable aimless and lacks style owing to the very fact that it is at present without a religious centre and even the future can give to mankind no such new centre as the middle ages had for example in catholicism the attainment of individualism has shut out that possibility for ever but one factor in the religion of the past the adoration of motherhood as divine mystery one factor in the religion of the middle ages the worship of the madonna has meanwhile been given back to the present by the doctrine of evolution with that universal validity which the thought must possess which seeks to give again to culture a centre 
great solitary individuals, prophets more often than disciples, have proclaimed the religion of this generation. But the word will become flesh only when fathers and mothers instill into the blood and soul of children their devout hope for a higher humanity. When women are premated by this hope, this new devout feeling, then they will recover the piety, the peace, and the harmony which, for the present and partly owing to feminism, have been lost. The innumerable new relations which the women movement has established between women and the home, between women and society, and all of the intercharges of new spiritual forces which have been put in operation because of these relations, cannot possibly take fixed form, at least not so long as the woman movement remains a movement. In other words, as long as everything is in a condition of flux, in a state of becoming, all spiritual relationships between individuals must change their form. Continual new fine shades of feeling not to be expressed in words determine every woman's soul and every woman's fate. And even ancient feelings receive continually different nuances, different intonations. I am therefore laying down no laws but merely recapitulating certain suggestions based on what has previously been said in regard to the soul of the modern woman as seen in that portion of the present generation whose age ranges between 20 and 30 years. That is to say, that part of the generation which is decisive for the immediate future. Since coeducation is becoming more and more general, each sex is beginning to have more esteem for the other, and woman as well as men is beginning to found self-respect upon work. When all women by culture and capacity for work have finally become strong-willed, self-supporting co-workers in society, then no woman will give or receive a love for any extraneous benefit whatsoever. No outward tie and no outward gain through love, this is the ultimate aim of the new sex morale, as the most highly developed modern young woman sees it. This new woman is deeply convinced that the relation between the sexes attains its true beauty and sanctity only when every external privilege disappears on both sides, when men and women stand wholly equal in what concerns their legal right and their personal freedom. She demands that the contrast between legal and illegal, rich and poor, boy and girl, shall disappear and that society shall show the same interest in the complete human development of all children. She knows that when both sexes awake to a feeling of responsibility towards the future generation, then the real concern of sexual morale becomes the endeavor to give the race an ever more perfect progeny. And in order to feel its fullness, this command maidens as well as youths must henceforth demand scientific instruction in sexual duties towards themselves and their possible children. The new woman is also deeply convinced that only when she feels happy and happiness signifies the development of the powers inherent in the personality can she properly fulfill her duties as daughter, wife, and mother. She can consciously sacrifice a part of her personality, for example, forego the development of a talent, but she can never subjugate nor surrender her whole personality and at the same time remain a strong-willed member of the family or of society in the broadest meaning of the word. She must assert her conception of life, her feeling of right, her ideals. And no social considerations for children, husband or family life are for her above the consideration which, in this respect, she owes to her own personality. 
When conflicts arise, she seeks wherever possible a solution that will permit her to fulfill her duty without annihilating herself. But if this is not possible, then she feels that it is her first duty not to fall below her ideal, either physically or spiritually, for this could prevent her from fulfilling precisely those duties for which she has so sacrificed herself, duties which she can perhaps perform later under other conditions, provided she has saved herself from being extinguished by brutality or despotism. But along with this individualism, there exists in the new woman a feeling for the unity of existence, the unity in which all things are parts and in which nothing is lost. She does not then look upon husband and children as continually demanding sacrifice and upon herself as being always sacrificed. She sees herself and them as in the antiquity of the race, always existing by means of one another. She is not consumed by her love, for she knows that under such circumstances, she would deprive her loved ones of the wealth of her personality. But although she will not, like the women of earlier times, abandon her ego absolutely, she will not, on the other hand, like certain modern feminists, keep it unreservedly. She will preserve upon a higher plane the old division of labor which made men the one who filled the game, fought the battles, made conquests, achieved advancement through victories, and which made woman the one who rendered the new domains habitable, who utilized the booty for herself and hers, who transmitted what was won to the new generation. All that of which woman's ancient task as guardian of the fire and cultivator of the fields are beautiful symbols. She feels that when each sex pursues its course for the happiness of the individual and of mankind, but at the same time as an equal helps the other in the different tasks, then each is most capable, then society is most benefited. The fact that there is still so much masculine brutality and despotism, and that there are so many legal means at man's disposal, whereby he may put into practice with impunity this brutality and despotism, is the reason why the new woman is still always a feminist, why she still maintains the fundamental tenets of the women movement. But she is not a feminist in the sense that she turns against men. Her solution is always that of Mary Wollstonecraft. We do not desire to rule over men but to rule over ourselves. She often exhibits now in deliberation and in determination the characteristics which were formerly called masculine, practical knowledge, love of truth, courage of conviction. She desists more and more from unjust imputation and empty words. She proposes a great number of well-considered suggestions for improvements. The woman movement has now, in a word, a more universally human, a less one-sidedly feminine character. It emphasizes more and more the fact that the right of woman is a necessity in order that she may fulfill her duties in the small individual family and exercise her powers in the great universal human family for the general good. The new woman does not wish to displace men nor to abolish society. She wishes to be able to exercise everywhere her most beautiful prerogative to help to support, to comfort. But this she cannot do so long as she is not free as a citizen and has not fully developed as a human personality. She knows that this is the condition not only of her own happiness, but also in quite as high a degree of the happiness of men. For every man who works, struggles, and suffers, there is a mother, a wife, a sister, a daughter who suffers with him. 
For every woman who, in her way, works and struggles, there is a father, a husband, a brother, or a son for whom her contribution, directly or indirectly, has significance. Above all, the modern woman understands that in every marriage wherein a wife still suffers under the man's misuse of his legal authority, it is in the last analysis of the man who sustains the greatest injury, for under present conditions he needs exercise neither kindness, nor justice, nor intelligence to be ruler in the family. These humane characteristics he must therefore begin to develop when the wife is legally his equal. The sacred conviction of the new woman is that men and women rise together just as they sink together. The antique sepulchres on which men and wife stand hand in hand before the eternal farewell could quite as well be the symbol of the entrance of modern men and modern women into the new life, where they work together in order that the highest ideals of both, the ideals of justice and of human kindness, may assume form in reality. The motherly qualities of women are applied for the good of children, as well as the good of the weak and of the suffering. The arrival of the day when women shall be given opportunity to exercise social motherliness in its full and popularly representative extent can be only a question of time. In a century, they will smile at our time in which it was still the practice to debate about such obvious matters. And those who today ridicule the woman movement will be ridiculed most of all. Then we shall attain such an outlook on the great forces of the time, the emancipation movements of laboring men and of women, that we shall see how necessary both were in order that society should come to understand that not the mass of material production, but the higher cultivation of the race, is the social political end, and that for this end the service of mother must receive the honor and oblation that the state now gives to military service. And women themselves, whom nature has made creators and protectors of the tender life, the task for which nature, even in the plant world, has made such wonderful provision, will no longer resist being more intimately associated with nature, nearer to earth, more like plants, more restrained in outer sense, and therefore in inner respects, less active than men, who always had more of the freedom of movement to the forest animal. The woman of the future will not, as do many women of the present time, wish to be freed from her sex, but she will be freed from sexual hyperthropy, freed to complete humanity. For the universal human characteristics, forced to remain latent in the primitive division of labor, because the father was obliged to exert all his strength in one direction and the mother in another, can now, through the facilities for culture in the struggle for existence, be developed on both sides. Woman can develop the latent quality which became active in men as manliness. Men can develop the latent quality which became active in woman as womanliness. But the proportional ratio of these characteristics which development has already strengthened will on the whole remain fixed. The proportional ratio which in the progress of evolution gave to woman the ascendancy in regard to inward creative powers and to men the ascendancy in regard to outward creative powers, a proportional ratio which for the present has made woman more gifted in the sphere of feeling, a man more potent in the sphere of ideas which has made her the listener and yearner in the sphere of the spiritual life, and him the pioneer, investigator, and founder of systems, that has given her more of the Christian and him more of the pagan virtues. 
The improvement of the universal human characteristics of both sexes elevates also the plane upon which they exercise their special functions, valuable alike for culture. With increasing frequency, the one sex may, when so desired, assume the culture function of the other. A perfect fusion of the two spiritual sex characters would, on the contrary, have the same result as physical hermaphroditism, sterility. Genius, and in using the term we limit its meaning to poetic genius, for real feminine genius has thus far appeared only in that domain, embraces, as emphasized above, both men and women, but not harmoniously blended. For such a genius would be unproductive, as we imagine those celestial forms to be which are neither men nor women. The masculine and the feminine characteristics which exist side by side in the poet's soul produce work in cooperation. Alternatively, however, they seek to usurp the entire power whereby is occasioned the disharmony which enters into the life of those who endeavor to fulfill, at one and at the same time, the universal human duties as well as those of sex. Indeed, it may be that one of the reasons why great poetic geniuses, masculine as well as feminine, have often had no progeny at all, and in other cases one of little significance, is that their nature was not capable of double production, that poetic creation received the richest part of their physical and psychical power. Whether the opinion of genius expressed here is correct or not does not, however, affect the general situation, for the genius will always go his own way, which is never that of the average man. From the point of view of the ordinary individual, an effacement of the spiritual sex character would be, in still higher degree, a misfortune for culture and nature, for it is the difference in the spiritual as well as the physical sex characteristics that makes love a fusion of two beings in a higher unit where each finds the full deliverance and harmony of his being. With the elimination of the spiritual difference, psychical love would vanish. There would be left then upon the one side only the mating instinct in which the same points of view as in animal breeding must obtain. On the other, only the same kind of sympathy which is expressed in the friendship between persons of the same sex, the sympathy in which the human individual difference instead of sexual difference forms the attraction. In love, on the other hand, sympathy grows in intensity. The more universally human and at the same time sexually attractive the individual is, the manly in men is charmed by the womanly in woman, while the womanly in men is likewise captivated by the manly in woman, and vice versa. But when neither needs the spiritual sex of the other as his complement, then man, in erotic respects, returns to the antique conception of the sex relationship of which Plato has drawn the final logical conclusion. The humanity in the soul of man was strengthened when he felt himself necessary to mother and child, when woman by sweetness and tenderness taught man to love, not only to desire, then his humanity increased immeasurably. In our time, the average man is beginning to learn that woman does not desire him as men, that she looks down upon him as a lower kind of being, that she does not need him as supporter. He does not at all grasp what it is the woman of highest culture seeks, demands, and awaits from his sex. But he learns that even the mediocre woman rejects the best he has to give her erotically, that imbued as she is with ideals of universal humanity, she no longer needs him as the supplement to her sexual being. Then brutality awakes in him anew. Then his erotic life loses what humanity it had won. Then he begins to hate women.
and not with the imaginative theoretical hatred of thinkers and poets, but with the blind rage which the contempt of the weaker for the stronger arouses in him. And here we encounter what is perhaps the deepest reason for the present war between the sexes, appearing already in the literary world as well as in the labor market. Here the extreme feminists play unconsciously about an abyss, the depths of the nature of men out of which the elementary hundred thousand year old impulses arise, the impulses which all cultural acquisitions and influences cannot eradicate so long as the human race continues to subsist and multiply under present conditions. The feminism which has driven individualism to the point where the individual asserts her personality in opposition to, instead of within the race, the individualism which becomes self-concentration, anti-social egoism, although the watchword inscribed upon its banner is society instead of the family, this feminism will bear the blame should the hatred referred to lead to war. It would be a pity to conclude a survey of the influence of women movement with an expression of fear lest this extreme feminism should be victorious. I believe not, no more than I believe that the sun will for the present be extinguished or streams flow back to their sources. No culture can annul the great fundamental laws of nature, it can only ennoble them, and motherhood is one of these fundamental laws. I hope that the future will furnish a new and a more secure protection for motherhood than the present family and social organization affords. I place my trust in a new society with a new morality which will be a synthesis of the being of men and that of a woman, of the demands of the individual and those of society, of the pagan and Christian conceptions of life, of the will, of the future, and reverence for the past. When the earth blooms with this beautiful and vigorous flower of morality, there will no longer be a woman movement, but there will always be a woman question, not put by women to society, but by society to women. The question whether they will continue in a higher degree to prove themselves worthy of the great privilege of being the mothers of the new generation. In the degree in which this new ethics permeates mankind, women will answer this question in life affirmation, and the result of their life affirmation will be an enormous enhancement of life, not only for women themselves, but for all mankind. End of section 11, End of the Woman Movement by Ellen Kay, translated by Mary Budin, Mema Borthwick. Read by Anna Naumoska.